Hello, I'm Rob Smith and this is my podcast, All Bases Covered. And uh, there has been a bit of a hiatus since the last episode, about six months in fact, because of uh, lockdown and me setting up my own business, Wild Rover Media, and the kids doing A-levels and GCSEs and, you know, life in general getting in the way. John Lennon famously said that uh, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Well, here I am, living proof of that. Anyway, my guest this time around is Amanda Redman. Not the actress, but a financial planner who's based in Tunbridge. Why am I chatting with her? I hear you cry. Well, first and foremost, because she's actually a really interesting person. Uh, She actually spent a long time working for a big corporate before striking out on her own, which obviously resonates with me on a personal level at the moment. But she's also got a lot of interesting thoughts about all sorts of things, not least women and their specific needs to think about financial planning differently to men because very often the whole having a family thing fundamentally changes their career trajectory and therefore their ability to save for a pension and so on in later life because there's actually a huge income gap still between men and women in later life. In fact, she's written a book specifically about all that and I'll give some details at the end of the podcast. Well during our conversation we ramble through all sorts of topics and the recording actually picks up while we'd already started chatting about life and families and so on as I was setting up the mics and camera and uh, how real life always intervenes in business and work whether you like it or not. So well we'll start where we were talking there so you've had a bit of disrupted night's sleep. Yes, yes. So what <laughs> of was all, going of all on? the night. So, oh, well, no, my, my daughter um, had a bit of tummy ache in the night and was just, you know, still likes to come into mum, even though she's nearly 12. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we did the cow pole, we did the hot water bottle, managed to scold my finger under the hot tap whilst filling the water bottle in the dark to, to, in order not to wake the dog up. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so. <laughs> this is slightly the thing, bleary isn't it? You know, this morning. It, well, it, it, when you're, you're at, the, the, at the top of your game, a very professional person, you've still got real life to deal with. Absolutely, yeah. Because that's, that, that's, kind of, that's a big part of what I want to have a chat with you about, really, mm-hmm. is, is about you and where you come from and how you've got to be where you are today. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you have to juggle it around everything as you're going yes. along. Because it's yeah. part of being a human being. You know, people, yes. people who try and imagine... Or present that thing that everything is smooth and calm and easy. Mm. They must be sitting on a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes, yeah, lots of things not being dealt with. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Amanda Redman, let's start at the beginning. Then, who are you? Oh, okay. So, well, I'm now 52. I am a mum of two. I have a son who's 23 and a daughter who's nearly 12. I'm very happily married on my second marriage. Um, and I have always worked throughout my life. My work and career have always been very important to me as well as my family. So, um, yeah, for the last 30 odd years, life has felt very, very busy. Yeah. So where did, where did you, you, you've got a financial planning company now. Yes, that's Amanda right. Amanda Redmond Financial Planning. What, what does that actually mean? What do you do? Yeah, so um, I work with clients of all ages um, to help them make their money work harder for them, really, mm-hmm. particularly in the area of pensions and retirement planning. That's an area where most people um, have difficulty properly mm-hmm. understanding what their options are. Mm-hmm. And I always like to 
help them understand what the future looks like. So working with me and my team, we try and paint a picture and make sure that whatever finances are in place are going to be sufficient to support whatever people want to do with their lives. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is technical, but actually the reason I love it is because it's about sitting down, talking to people and helping them achieve what they want to achieve over the medium to long term. Do you love it? So, yeah, I do, I do love it. Um, it's my second career. Mm -hmm. I did something very different for the first 21 years. But it is, it's that combination of feeling that you're making a difference for people, but also having done a lot of studying, having a lot of technical knowledge that you know other people don't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. So being an expert and being able to help people and hopefully describe it all in a way that they can understand um, more readily than, you know, the, the financial services industry is full of jargon. Yeah. A lot of it quite unnecessary in my view, but um, <laughs> it's just designed to make things seem more complicated than they really are. But oh, because no, it's very fulfilling. Good. I'm pleased to hear that. And, and it is that thing of cutting through the jargon, isn't it? If you want to mm. really connect with people, you've got to be able to just speak plain English and put it in rational terms. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. Yes. Yes, no, definitely. And we've all got, no, no matter what area of expertise we have as individuals, there'll always be lots of things that we don't understand. You know, I don't, when, when my plumbing engineer comes to sort out the radiators here, I don't understand what he's saying sometimes because I don't know about plumbing. Uh -huh. And it's the same with, with finances, you know, and even just the word pension can make anybody under the age of 40 stick their fingers in their ears and just go la 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 and just not not want to think about it there's just something about that word yeah. but but you know when you explain to people that you know actually you know it's just about what money are you going to live on when you're no longer working mm -hmm. and wouldn't it be nice to have the option to stop working as young as possible um, and when you get them to think about it in real life terms um, they they will engage a lot more I, uh, somebody said to me the other day, if you can't describe your, what you do to a six-year-old, mm -hmm. you probably don't really know what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> Which yeah. I thought was a nice way of putting it. Yeah, that You no, have definitely. to be able to kind of synthesise it down. Yes. Which you did very elegantly there. So, <laughs> um, so you said that you had another career for 21 years before you started mm. doing this. What were you actually doing? Yes. So I was in marketing. Uh -huh. I joined uh, a company straight from university, having studied languages. So it wasn't a business-focused degree. Um, but I joined as a marketing graduate and then worked my way up. Um, it was in what's called fast-moving consumer goods right. or brands, as we would call it. So household brands um, on the personal Any care and health and beauty side. Yeah, brands like Kleenex, Andrex, Huggies. Um, yeah, the, that sort of stable of brands. And the company really grew over the time that I was employed there. So mm. I joined a company that felt very much like a, a UK, a small-ish UK-focused company. Mm. But there was um, quite a rapid expansion across Europe. So I was lucky enough to work with teams in every single European country, including Central and Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So I traveled extensively. I went to Russia a couple of times. Um, what was that like? Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Um, when when not, are we talking about? So this was in the 2000s. Okay, right. Um, and so I went to Moscow a couple of times, but then we also took an internal flight to a city called Ekaterinburg, mm -hmm. which is in the Urals. And it's a lot further 
east mm -hmm. than most Westerners ever go. You mm -hmm. wouldn't go there as a tourist. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, absolutely fascinating. And the people are so friendly and hospitable and very proud of their businesses, their entrepreneurial spirit. We were there to talk to some distributors who were selling our brands within, within the markets. And again, you know, not, not shops as we know it necessarily, other than in the big cities, but open air markets where you literally buy every, every good that you need. And so. I mean, how did you, going and seeing that, and seeing that as such a, a radically different place to the UK, how, did that sort of change your thinking of things? In a, do, do you know what yeah, I mean? Like, when you go and you experience a completely different mode of life and a different society like that. Yes. Yeah, no, it definitely makes you appreciate the, not necessarily the simple things of life, but the basics, because we are so lucky in that so much of what we have we take for granted mm -hmm. and actually I think the recent experience of the Covid pandemic has, has highlighted to us actually that when it boils down to it there are certain things that we need to treasure yeah. a bit more. Yeah. But um, what's fascinating about working with other countries and other cultures is that there are so many commonalities as well and at that time I was working on the Huggies brand mm -hmm. so it was all about how you know mum, young mums, new mums and their babies mm -hmm. and there are many universal truths around that no matter what your background is and and the truth is that most mums will spend as much money as they can possibly afford to give their babies the best start in life mm -hmm. even down to buying what you know what for them were expensive nappies but they would spend a, a, a disproportionate amount of their income to make sure that their baby had the best mm -hmm. um, so yeah, some of those you know some some of those commonalities are are evident wherever you go. And that re it's a really interesting one, that isn't it? Of of the, the desire for any parent to want the best for their kids, as you say, that mm. is a universal thing. Yes. That any any sort of government system or or program that tries to make everybody be the same, mm. you're always going to be running hard into the fact that. People don't want to be the same. They want to do their own yes. thing and they want to do the best thing by their kids. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and for a lot, in a lot of markets, a lot of countries, you know, people are trying to improve their situation, doing as much as they can themselves mm -hmm. to increase their income in order to spend it on their families and mm -hmm. to give themselves a better life. So, yeah, some of the uh, political systems that are in place... Um, you know, around, uh, you know, in Russia, for example, where everyone is, is intended to be the same. Mm -hmm. Human nature doesn't really doesn't respond happen, well to that. No, no, no. You look at China as well, and it's just the same thing there. And it, the harder a regime clamps down on people, the more they try and wriggle away from it. You know? Yes, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's that need to be an individual as well, I guess. Yeah, you can't get away from it. You can't get away from it. Now, you mentioned the the weirdness of of covid and and i wanted to mention it right at the beginning but it's a good time to mention it now <laughs> that you had a very weird award ceremony massive congratulations to you <laughs> what did you win oh thank you well yeah i was shortlisted for uh, a women in business award uh -huh. in financial services which is a national award uh, um, and it celebrates um working mums, entrepreneurial women um, who have set up and running their own business. So yes, I was, the, I was announced as the winner um, in the financial services category, which I was delighted about. Um, unfortunately, the planned ceremony for 2020 couldn't take place. No. Um, the organisers had 
delayed it until the end of April initially this year, 2021, um, in, in the belief that we would all be back to sitting in large venues and mm -hmm. eating nice dinner again, but no. So they held it as a virtual ceremony in March. Did you dress up? But Yes, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So we were encouraged to dress up and uh, yeah, so I had my floor length uh, cocktail dress on and my makeup and I took some photos of myself sitting in front of my laptop in my lounge at home <laughs> all dressed up with my glass of champagne obviously in anticipation of a good evening uh -huh. and then delighted to be announced as the as the winner so um, yes it's been a strange year but you know we've all tried to continue to celebrate successes wherever we can yeah. because we can't allow ourselves to write off that year completely. No, that wouldn't absolutely be right. not. Absolutely not. You've managed to get through this okay? Business is going okay? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I feel fortunate that we're the type of business that was able to adapt very quickly onto video calls and, and mm -hmm. Zoom and Teams. Um, so we were able to continue to support our, our clients, um, continue to have annual reviews with them, as well as reassuring everyone um, when the pandemic really hit the Western markets and there was a very sharp fall in the stock markets. Mm -hmm. So that's where our advice, <coughs> excuse me, that's where our advice can really add value because we were able to discuss clients' individual circumstances and, mm -hmm. and in the main reassure them that uh, they shouldn't knee-jerk with any immediate response to that. And actually all of the funds and the investments recovered their value very quickly exactly as they're designed to do in our portfolios. Mm. So it, it was good. And we still took on some new clients uh, through the course of, of last year. Um, and uh, in fact, people um, were finding that they had a little bit more time um, from working at home themselves. And financial planning is often one of those things that's always on the to-do list, but never quite makes it to the top because mm. there's always other always priorities. To think about. Yeah, uh, yeah. But actually being at home, a lot of people did take the opportunity to think, right, I'm actually going to sort my pensions out. Um, that's going to be one one thing ticked off the list. So, uh, so no, it, it was good. And uh, we're all delighted to be starting to come back to the office. Though. Well, I was going to ask you that. So physically, you have come back into your office space, haven't you? Yes. Over the last couple of weeks, we have. Yeah. Are yeah. you planning on basically doing what you were before? Or are you changing your how you do things? You're going to be using Zoom and Teams and all those things to, to be with clients more than you would have been a year ago? Yeah, exactly that. Um, the technology has really helped make everyone's time much more efficient and mm. I don't have to spend as much time driving or going on the trains to visit people. But what I've found is that it is very important to still try and have that in-person contact when, you're f when you first meet somebody mm -hmm. new and you're trying to build a relationship. The work I do is obviously very much based on trust and you need to sit in the same room as someone ideally and look into the whites of their eyes and, mm -hmm. and develop that trust. So my intention is still that I will do as many in-person meetings as I can, particularly with new clients. But then once uh, we got to know each other quite well, it makes it easier then to have follow-up meetings via Zoom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms it's of... It's going to be interesting to see how wider businesses do. You know, you've had some businesses that have said... Everyone's mm. going to be back in. I think it was Goldman mm. Sachs were, were quite, you know, upfront mm. about that a month or so ago, a few weeks ago, and saying we're going to get everybody back in the, in the office exactly the same as it was. Yes. And then an awful lot of other companies have already let a lot of office space go. And they're, mm. they're not intending getting people 
back in. And it's going to be really interesting to see which model works yes. best longer term because everyone's yes. going to be looking at everyone else and thinking well are they are they doing better than us because of yes. their working model yes yeah no, no definitely I think it, as you say it will be very interesting and my own experience from both my corporate career and now is uh, I was always a huge fan of, of flexible working and promoted it quite strongly in mm -hmm. some of the uh, diversity work that I did in my corporate career anyway um, but I, I actually, I, I believe and hope that the experience of the last 12 months has really step changed and accelerated that acceptance of flexible working and that it's not just a benefit for working mums, it's a benefit for everybody. You know, I know a lot of dads that have really enjoyed being able to do the school run in the morning or the afternoon or just being able to go for a walk or a run at any point in the day, um, you know. And, and also speaking to some more senior people recently, I, I, I'm hopeful that those perhaps senior managers who were a bit cynical or sceptical about home working and whether people were actually, you know, actually working yeah. or sitting in front of daytime TV, you know, mm -hmm. they now understand that you know, if they've employed the right people in the first place, everyone is very conscientious mm -hmm. and and values that flexibility and actually it's an, it, it, it motivates people. Well, it'll be interesting and, to see what the productivity figures are like sort of mm, in a year's time and you yes. know what actually happened during it because the trouble with all the people talk and they say one thing it's not yeah. until you get to look at the figures a year or so and put stuff into context yes. to see what's really gone on and that's yes. when, when proper value judgments are going to be made. Yes. So yeah. you, you talked a little bit about um, flexibility and working mums and and diversity and all those kind of things mm. these are big themes for you aren't they you're actually writing yes. a book about it at the moment yes that's right I've taken the plunge and decided to uh to tick um being an author off my bucket list um <laughs> but uh but yeah I've Have you always... got a long bucket list uh well most of it involves traveling which I can't do very much of at the okay. moment but uh but no, it's one of those slightly scary things where you put yourself outside of your comfort zone. And I do think it's important that we challenge ourselves in that way uh -huh. every now and again. So does the book have a title? It, the book has a working title uh -huh. at the moment. Um, and it's called Dare to be Fair um, with the subtitle of How to Know Your Worth and Build Yourself a Better Financial Future. Uh -huh. And it's a book that is, is written for women and it's really a rallying cry for women of all ages, but particularly those who are maybe in their 20s and 30s at the beginning of their careers, mm -hmm. to just get involved in their own personal finances for all sorts of reasons, really. But um, I've always been a very self-sufficient woman financially, mm -hmm. and I witness some of the disadvantages that women who are not in that position can, can have. Um, so the book is intended to demystify a lot of things about um, finances and just make it all a lot easier to understand. But in particular, encourage women to get involved with their husbands or partners in their longer term planning and mm. not leave it to somebody else, i.e. their husband, and, to be making those decisions for them. And it's, it's not, you haven't written this as, it's not like a fictionalised story. You're not following somebody's story through it. This is all solid advice and experience you're putting into it yes i mean it's i've written it with a lot of my own personal insights and 
you know, talk a bit about my own experiences. But it's been very much a combination of my experience through my 21 years in the corporate world and and gr developing my career whilst having children mm -hmm. and the different experiences I had in the late 1990s when I had my son and how things had changed by 2009. Um, have things got better? Well, it's really interesting. So flexible working is much more was much more accepted by then, mm -hmm. which was definitely a good thing. Mm -hmm. But my observation is that it's actually become a, a double-edged sword now. And as maternity leave has generally become extended, so when I went on maternity leave with my son in 1997-8, um, the norm was just to have six months, but now it tends to be a year. And there are implications of women being out of the workplace for longer. Mm -hmm. it, can affect your confidence, it can affect your ability to integrate back into the workplace seamlessly um, and it has bigger financial implications if you are not earning and crucially if you're not continuing to pay into a pension. Mm. So the book looks at, I, do, I, I look at a, a couple of case studies of the choices that women have made when they um, have had their first child and whether they choose to go back into the workplace immediately, whether they go back part-time rather than full-time or whether they take a career break for a couple of years. So what would you say to a woman who's say you know 25, 30 having their first baby and mulling all these things mm -hmm. over at the moment because it's in, in every yeah. case is different obviously. Yes. So, so we're talking very much in generalities here but what would your key bits of advice be to someone in that position? And obviously, this is, you know, I say a woman, very often they will have a, a partner. They may be married or mm -hmm. not married, it doesn't matter, but they'll, yes. they'll have a significant other person in their life that will be part yes. of that, usually. So what would your advice be to somebody in that, that sort of first baby situation? My advice is that um, the financial implications of your decisions need to be given as much priority as the other considerations that you will have as a family. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, the, the finances are, are front and centre in terms of couples deciding who's going to go back to work. Um, and often, even by that stage, the man is earning more than the woman. Mm -hmm. And that's because women's financial life journeys are quite different right from school. It starts with the subjects that girls tend to study and the careers they then go into. Um, for example, the STEM areas that, that um, the sort of science and technology tend to be better paying careers mm -hmm. but we know that there's still um, perhaps fewer women choosing those types of careers mm. compared to um, nursing and caring which tend to be lower paid so even by the time a woman is in her late 20s um, there can be a difference in the earnings between her and her partner mm -hmm. but but the key advice really is to understand the longer term implications um, on you as an individual if you choose to stay at home or, or go back part time. Because if you're not, um, there, there's one thing about not earning and whether you've got enough money as a family to meet all of your short term needs. And obviously most couples will take that into account. Mm. But what they don't appreciate is if, if um, the mum stays at home or goes back part time, the amount of money she's putting into her pension or other longer term investment vehicle is going to be significantly reduced. Mm. 
and the stats... Because it's a multiplier, isn't it? It is, yeah. There's this compounding effect and the more you put in, particularly at a younger age, the better your financial situation is going to be. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, most of us, I guess, go into our long-term relationships thinking that we will be with that person throughout our lives mm -hmm. and that we, when we retire, we will still be with our husband or partner. But also, as we know, that's not true for Doesn't about half, no. half of people. And it, it is a mistake to think that things will all be resolved fairly and amicably in the event of a divorce. Divorces and the way we have to do them in this country are very confrontational, very, mm. very emotional. Mm. And unfortunately, pension sharing is not a default position. And that's something that I know other organisations are lobbying for that pensions. So you push for that. So that whatever, Definitely. if you, yeah. well, okay. Because, you know, in in if a woman decides not to um, pursue her career to the same extent that she was before having children, I don't see why she should be financially disadvantaged as a result of doing that. Mm. And that, unfortunately, is what happens. So the, the what I write about in the book is also hopefully lots of practical ideas. So. If you're having, well, when you're having that discussion as a couple, um, and if you decide that um, it's right for you as individuals and for the family not to return to work full time, mm. then my view is that um, if the man is continuing to work full time, he should be continuing to make pension contributions on behalf of his oh, wife right. or okay. girlfriend mm -hmm. so that she is not financially disadvantaged. Longer term. No, um, no that's, that's interesting. But it's very difficult because at the very point that you're potentially asking somebody to do that, you're taking on the huge financial burden of mm. having a baby. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> they, they're quite expensive. Yeah, they are. And it's, it's not easy to square that circle, yeah. but um, it's just being ignored at mm. the moment. And there needs to be a, mo a lot more thought and consideration put into it. And I would actually say if you're a woman who is developing and enjoying her career, then try to go back to work as full time as possible, mm -hmm. because actually it will um, it will produce other benefits as well around confidence, etc. Mm. And um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the the emotional side of having children is quite impactful is mm. that the way we're putting in it you know yeah. lots of people and they actually when push comes to shove and they actually have their baby they're they're not prepared for quite what that means mm. and that you know i've known loads of people who before having children are like i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and i'm going to do the yes. other and they're very definite about it and then they have a baby and it all goes out the window because yes. because yeah. the emotional impact is gigantic yeah no absolutely and uh, and obviously i completely respect that this is such an individual decision um, and all I'm saying is that um, the the awareness of the longer term financial implications need to be taken into account. Mm. But I also focus in the book on the role that employers um, need to take. And it, it's astonishing to me that um, women will often return to the workplace um, after having a baby and feel on the back foot mm. and feel like they have to prove themselves and that they can do their job just as well or even better than they did it before. Mm. Um, and some of that, I think, is that employers don't overtly value the skills that a woman develops when she's looking after a baby. Mm -hmm. Which, if you think about it, when you're, you know, you learn to multitask, you learn to prioritise your time and make quick decisions when you're, um, when you're running a household and, and managing a baby. Um, and actually those, you know, your time management and your 
prioritisation skills really improve when you're on maternity leave. And I think those are skills that women themselves should be promoting when they go back into the workplace and employers should be recognising and valuing. So rather than... Do you think that too many women just don't recognise those things as skills? Yeah, I think everyone underplays the value of those skills. Mm. Um, And what employer wouldn't want those skills amongst their workforce? Um, It just feels that because anything to do with raising children doesn't have a monetary value attached to it by mm. society. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not monetized and valued in the same way as um, you know, being a, a good decision maker within a workplace environment. Mm. But you know, all of those same skills are needed when you're raising children, and particularly if you are then juggling work and childcare as well. And is this, quite a big question now, but is this something that requires legislation to look at, or is it just, a shift of uh, kind of opinion and a shift of experience. Do you know what yeah, I mean? That, yeah, you know, does, yeah. does government need to get involved in this? Or is this just a question of changing people's attitudes? I think it's both. I think it has to operate at the personal level. Um, we have to drive change as individuals. It has to operate um, within an, an, a workplace organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think legislation is needed. So. One question that I often ask myself is, um, it's all around the gender pay gap, mm-hmm. and there are obviously, that's very complex, it, 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 but, um, but again, it's, it's exacerbated, it's that snowball effect that can be very negative. So f- just coming back to what we were previously talking about, if women do decide to go back into the workplace, sometimes they no longer want to commute into a city. Mm-hmm. They might want to change jobs and work locally so that they're nearer to their childcare arrangements, Mm -hmm. and that will often result in a lower paid job. Um, But when you're, there's often this concern over whether women have the same level of promotional opportunities Mm -hmm. as men. But for me, it comes down to um, one thing, which is why do we negotiate our pay? Mm. Why is it something that we are allowed to vary? Mm -hmm. Um, And by promoting ourselves effectively, we can end up achieving a higher level of pay or a higher level of bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, why so, Some employers don't allow pay to be negotiated, no. but, but there is an assumption that, um, that, that it is, and men seem to sometimes be much more willing to do that. People and who shout the loudest that. are often heard the most, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> whereas people quietly getting on with it and yes. doing the job. Yeah. Whereas I think, I mean, the progressive employers are moving to a more skills-based assessment mm-hmm. of whether of, of what to pay somebody for doing a certain job. Mm. And I know that many large organisations benchmark their remuneration against other uh, competitors um, very regularly. So it's not difficult to produce job descriptions that are very clear on the skills that are needed. Mm -hmm. And in my view, it's possible, although more difficult, for companies to say, well, this role, um, we're going to pay X amount of salary Mm -hmm. for this role. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to see is, again, in order to not disadvantage women who might be coming back into the workplace after taking a career break, 
is for it to be illegal for a company to ask what your current or previous pay oh, right, was okay. to make it a protected characteristic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember the days when you could ask somebody how old they were and then legislation was introduced to make that a protected characteristic. As, an, as a recruiting employee, you're no longer allowed to ask somebody how old they are in case it leads to discrimination. And I, I would like the same approach to be taken for pay. Um, to make it um, a protected characteristic so it's irrelevant yeah. what you've previously So you get paid, paid for doing the job you're going to do. It's got yes. nothing to do with what you've done in the past. Yes, yeah. It's more difficult for employers to operate in that way, without a doubt. But um, I think it's necessary to start to deconstruct some of the sort of institutions and practices that have just developed over the decades. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not all fit for purpose any longer. And I think the younger generation will d um, have even more modular careers than perhaps our generation have had, okay. where you know it's now very common for people to have more than one career and to have two or three completely different types of careers. But when I look at my son, who's 23, uh -huh. and, and hear him and his friends talking, you know, they plan to have much more modular careers and break it up with perhaps periods of travel or working overseas for a couple of years and it will be much more difficult for employers to assess a sort of linear career path and therefore base their remuneration decisions on that. Mm -hmm. They will have to start assessing people more individually on their skills rather than on their past career. Okay, hold that thought for a moment. So I'm going to change tack a little bit now, but yes. off the back of what you were just saying there, Let's go back. Let's go back in time, because we're of a, a, a similar age. Let's go back to the nineteen seventies and Amanda Redman as a little girl <laughs> and at school. Yes. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh goodness. Okay. When I was really young, I wanted to be an astronaut. Did you? Yes. Why did you not pursue that? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I guess it was one of those those uh, dream dreams that, that you have. Although having said that, if there was a way for me to get myself into space before I die now, I think I would be quite interested. But I don't have a spare 200,000 pounds or whatever. Or to, Elon uh, Musk. They're yeah. looking for people to go and ping into space at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, but, yeah no, exactly. But, uh, but no, I, um, I, didn't, I didn't have a particularly strong focus on what I wanted to do as a child. My mum um, had been a nurse, mm -hmm. um, had worked at Great Ormond Street, um, but I was never really into the idea of nursing and mm. didn't really like biology at school, so sort of dismissed that as a possible career route. Um, I think I just, at school, I followed the subjects that I enjoyed, which was maths and languages. Right, okay. Um, and yeah, ended up um, taking, you know, passing a degree in languages. Um, and then... Which language? German and French okay. were my main languages. And I lived in Germany for a year as a student, which was a fantastic experience. And then in my first career, I worked in Germany on a couple of occasions for fairly brief spells, uh -huh. but... Um, are, you, are you still uh, fluent now? Oh, I'm not fluent, um, but I suppose I could go back to being You could order fluent. a schnitzel without Yes, so much. I can. Yeah. <laughs> and I can still read and understand a lot more than I can speak. Yeah. Um, but I think um, what, what I have always enjoyed doing is working with people and communication has always been a key part of my life, I yeah. suppose. So yeah. starting with languages, then into marketing. So 
making yourself understood um, in a way that, that other people can relate to. So could you, if you, if you look back at yourself as a, as a child, <laughs> do you think that, you know, little Amanda would be comfortable with where you are today? Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. I think so. I think I've always been quite determined and quite happy to try new things, even if nobody else around me w was doing the same. Mm -hmm. And that's a personality thing, I think, because mm. I see it in my son, but my daughter is different. You know, she will only join a sports club or do something if she's got a friend there with her. Whereas... I wasn't too bothered whether I was the only one doing it. I didn't mind being different. <clears throat> that translated into me being a goth for a couple of years, oh, by really? the way. Wow. And just wearing black for two years uh -huh. with lots of liquid eyeliner and just being quite comfortable, looking a bit weird. Um, so so is this, are we talking, you know, Jesus and Mary chain, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, what, what the were you cult into? and the yeah. cure, Susie and the Banshees. So um, I had my 50th birthday a couple of years ago and we had a big 80s party a, a fancy dress party and I did dress up as Susie from S Susie Sue uh -huh. um, and it was just so much fun um, but uh, but yeah so I've always sort of been quite driven I suppose been quite serious about the work that I do as well because mm. um, I've always it's always been a big part of me um, and I like being challenged and the reason I'm now doing what I'm doing is because I decided in my late 30s, early 40s, that I really wanted to be my own boss. Mm. Um, oh, I was going to ask that. Was there a particular moment that led to that change? You Once you spent 20-odd years building up momentum in a career, and presumably you were reasonably mm. senior yes. in your company at yeah. that point. So then to jack that in and do yes. something else, it's a, it, there's a big risk involved in that. There's mm. a big psychological break involved in that. There's all mm. sorts of big elements that go into making that decision so was there like something yes. that crystallized it was it was it going through the divorce was it was it you know what was the moment where you suddenly thought I can't carry on doing this I need to do something else yeah um it, it wasn't one moment in time but it certainly started to build I think I, I had got to a senior position um and that was great because I was then able to be more influential around things like flexible working mm. and encouraging that to be a much more widespread practice than it was before then. Um but I'd got to the stage where in order to continue to progress my career I would probably have needed to work overseas and at that stage of my life I'd had my my daughter as well and I didn't want to spend as much time away from home or or to relocate the family mm. but I think I'd also got to the point where um, I just felt like I'd achieved far more than I'd probably ever anticipated um, when I first started there and my dad actually had given me a very good definition of ambition when I first started work which was if you can see somebody in a position above you doing a job that you think you can do better then that's ambition mm -hmm. and I'll follow I followed that path um, all the way through and I suppose I had actually got to the point where I was looking at the people in more senior positions and thinking they had been over promoted mm -hmm. and I was starting to lose a little bit of respect for them and at that point I think it's time to to move on because otherwise you, you didn't fancy getting up alongside them and showing them how to do it properly um, I think after 20 years, I just felt that I didn't really want to 
do the same again for yeah. another 20 years. And in my early 40s, that felt like the right time. Mm -hmm. I felt I was worldly wise enough to, to make that big step. But you're right, it was quite a risk. Um, I was fortunate enough in a way to leave with redundancy and that gave me the cushion to retrain mm -hmm. and to give myself some breathing space before launching into something else. But I think, again, it was probably a personality trait. I was always quite comfortable with the decisions I was making and very happy to stand by them if I made a decision that turned out not to have been the best one. Mm -hmm quite happy to take responsibility for that. Mm. I've always, that's been one of my core values, sort of fairness and taking responsibility for what you do, are, are things that are really important to me. So I just felt that I had the courage of my convictions to, to um, step out on my own. Well, but it took, off, me, it? it took me a couple of years to figure out what that looked like mm -hmm. um, because I didn't want, yeah, I, I, it, it took me a while to figure out what would I be good at. I wasn't an inventor. I didn't have a, a, a great business idea that I wanted to go off and launch. So I never felt that thought of myself as an entrepreneur, mm. but I knew I wanted to run my own business, be the main decision maker. And for the first few years, it was just me. Mm -hmm. um, and then the business got to the stage where I needed support. So I started to employ people. Um, and now That's quite I've, a scary moment, isn't it? It, it is, and it's very different to employing people and bringing them into your own small business mm. compared to the corporate workplace. So, yes, I'd interviewed numerous people, hired people, sacked a couple of people. But when you've got an HR department to guide you through that, it's very different to um, bringing a couple of people on board and then sharing your business which has become your baby mm -hmm. in those first few years and having a kind of direct personal responsibility for them as well mm. that the business has to pay their wages and then and that's yes. you that's your responsibility yeah no absolutely it is a big responsibility and as you get to know your your team and get to know their families and as you say you realize that you know i'm responsible for whether they have a holiday each year or not you know um and that yeah it's it, it is a huge responsibility, but also a very rewarding one. Mm. Again, when you know that you're doing the right thing and, you know, I've got a fantastic team. I, I've recruited some uh, brilliant people over the last few years. They all share my values. We're very focused on our clients. It's all about making sure that we do the right thing. Um, but I think all the lessons I learned through my corporate life have hopefully made me a Informed good employer yeah. and uh, a very tolerant and very flexible employer. Um, that just at the end of the day, I want all of my staff to love what they do. Well, I'm sure they'll they'll listen to this at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully they'll go. agree. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. So we'll, we'll we'll start wrapping it up now. And I just wanted to ask, sort of, um, you mentioned sports that your uh, kids, you know, mm -hmm. got involved in. Are you sporty at all? Did you play sport? I was very sporty, yeah. I, I loved all the team games, netball, hockey, but I did uh, swimming, um, I did athletics, um, gymnastics, yeah, I, I, I loved so it. So you're quite competitive. Yes, yeah, yeah I suppose that's like to win. it. Yeah. yeah, although I have definitely mellowed over the years. Uh -huh. I was, when I look back um, in my 20s, I was very headstrong and opinionated. Um, and I still have those opinions, but I'm a little bit more circumspect, I suppose, <laughs> as to how I choose to voice them. Um, but, uh, 
but yeah, sport has always been a, a really important part of, of my life. And I love football as well. I've never played football, but I've always followed um, Arsenal. Oh, I'll have say you? It out oh, well, loud. that's good. No, that's yeah, I'm an Arsenal. Our, fam our family are Gooners through and through. Wow, so, you see, I knew yeah. there was a connection. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, so yeah, and um, my husband is really into cricket. He's he's always played cricket, plays for local teams, and. Uh, yeah, both my children have been very sporty. It's one of the things, if I could get into government and change one thing, it would be to make sport massively more central to mm -hmm. school experience for right. the average people. When you look at the, the, the most significant difference, I think, between the, the public school education and state mm -hmm. school education mm -hmm. is that in public schools, sport is front and centre of, of everything. It's yes. taken incredibly seriously. Um, and kids who go through that process tend to come out the end of it with a lifelong willingness to get involved in sport, to think going for yes. a run is a normal, natural thing, to go for a swim is a normal, natural thing. It's not something that you have to make an, a special effort for. Yes. And that pays off yes. through your whole life. It's the multiplier thing that you've been mm. talking about as well, that, that if you are financially well prepared throughout your life then you get to old age and you're financially set if you're physically well prepared throughout your life you yes. get to old age and you're physically well set yes. whereas if at school you haven't really played sport whether it's yes. a team sport or an individual sport if you haven't really done it and then you go through your 20s and 30s and you're a couch potato then yes. by the time you get into your 50s and 60s your health problems are massive yes. and it costs you personally yes. and it costs the country an enormous amount. Yeah. So there we are. So yes. that's I'm going to stand on that soapbox on a yes. regular basis every yeah. any time I get the opportunity. No, absolutely. But does that does that make sense? Absolutely. It really resonates. And um, you know, I I loved sport, and occasionally I was the captain, but often I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's the beauty of of team sports that it doesn't matter what role you have within the team. Mm -hmm. You learn so many life skills, mm -hmm. for, and and that the highs of winning and the lows of losing are really important. And I do think that we um, wrap our children in cotton wool a bit too much and sanitise some of those moments when you lose or when things don't yeah. go right yeah. and and it's really important that you experience those because then the joy of of things going well is so much sweeter and the other element that i always like to ask people about is the environment because mm -hmm. that's kind of you know and it's an enormous subject we could have easily talked about <laughs> the environment for you know all the way through but does is is that important to you in your business life to think mm -hmm. about your impact on the, the wider environment and how you think about things? Yes, definitely. Um, I think it's one of those areas that obviously, like a lot of people, I've become more aware of, particularly over the last five to 10 years. Um, and yeah, I mean, it plays a very central role in certainly my current business. Um, the funds that, that we invest our clients' money into are all run by fund managers who are signed up to the United Nations Principles of Responsible Investing. That's always been front and centre of our investment proposition and that's hugely important. Mm. And just within the last couple of years, it's what um, our clients expect. Um, but it's, it's good to be at the, at the sort of front end of that curve. Mm. So yes, we, we will always try and do our best and I, th I can just see that building and building over the coming years at a personal level um, and also definitely at a business level. And as a, as a final thing, what would your, you know, you've, you've lived life, you're a parent, you've, you've done a career, 
you've got a successful business so you you mm-hmm. you know you're a successful human being you <laughs> you've you've done some good stuff so what would be the bits of advice that you would want to pass on to somebody who is in their you know late teens early 20s and thinking about what they're doing with their life and why they should do it what would you say to them wow so just an easy one yeah an easy one to end <laughs> with thanks rob um so i would say when you're at that stage of life it's really important to pursue what you enjoy doing rather than necessarily being shepherded down a particular route maybe because other people might want you to do something mm-hmm. we're all much more successful as individuals when we enjoy what we're doing but i would working hard is a part of my ethic as well um, you can't be successful if you're only half in um, so yeah work hard Um, talk to lots of people, um, get a broad network, but be very open-minded, listen to other people's experiences and learn from them. That's probably one thing that has stood me in good stead and, and and will continue to do so. I love listening to other people's experiences. And when I first set up this business, one of the first things I did was spend a lot of time talking to other partners who had been doing this for 20 years to find out their experiences and and the tips and hints that they would give me mm-hmm. so um yeah and just fully commit i think just work hard and throw yourself in um be open-minded and be prepared to adapt and and, and be flexible mm-hmm. when you come up against something that that makes you think differently well i've Loved listening to your experiences, Amanda. It's been lovely having a chat with you. Somebody's banging in a picture, I think, in the next door room, so it's probably a good time to draw it to a close. Yes. But yeah. thanks for your time. You're welcome. Amanda Redman of Amanda Redman Financial Planning chatting with me at her office in Tunbridge there. And her book, Dare to be Fair, is out at the end of July. Now, if you want to see what Amanda and I look like when we're chatting with each other, you can. If you just go to my website, wildrovermedia.com, and then go to the blog page, then you'll find a link to it there, as well as my YouTube channel. Hopefully, I'm going to uh, start doing podcasts a little bit more regularly in the future, rather than making them biannual events. But in this brave new world where you can't even go to the pub without booking in advance, let alone go on holiday to France, who knows? I make no promises that I can't keep. In the meantime, stay safe and well and look after your loved ones and really seriously think about your pension. Bye.